the Bible teaches that every knee, every tongue will confess and bow down at the name of Jesus. That we have a choice when we will bow down. We either bow down at the name of Jesus now in life-saving faith, that we receive the salvation of Jesus Christ, or we will one day bow down in the presence of God's judgment throne. Welcome to The Cleansing Word. We invite you to stay with us as Pastor John Pinnell of Calvary Chapel Lake Villa takes us through a verse-by-verse study from God's Word. Each Monday through Friday, we'll be airing messages to encourage you in your faith that you might grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I hope that you enjoy this broadcast and I'll return at the close of this teaching to give you more information about our church and how you can obtain a copy of this message. Now here's Pastor John with today's message from God's Word. So today we're going to look at grace is grace from Romans 11 verses 1 through 16. I've broken it into three sections. First of all, we'll look at the election of grace in verses 1 through 6, riches for the world, verses 7 through 12, and the first fruit and the root in verses 13 through 16. They had eyes, they had ears, verse 8, but with their eyes they could not see, with their ears they could not hear. God had given them a spirit of stupor to this very day. Having refused to accept the righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ, God gave them over to a spirit of stupor. And here's a word that it's only found here in the Greek New Testament, only used once, and it's found here in Romans 11, verse 8. This Greek word that refers to this spirit of stupor, it means to prick violently, to sleep or to slumber, to be bewildered, Uh, We might have a better way to describe it as someone nodding off to sleep. Something that happens often in churches across the United States. (laughs) So when your head bob, you know that quick head bob that you get, you try to keep your eyes awake, that's the spirit of stupor. Could be that you're exhausted. When I was a brick mason in the winter time especially, it was horrible. You work in the winter, you're cold. And on a midweek service, I'd go to church on Wednesday and get inside a warm church. You've been cold for eight hours all day long, and you get in warmth. That's just a great combination of sleep. And I would often have the spirit of stupor there on a Wednesday evening in the winter time when I was a brick mason. Isaiah 29, 9 and 10 is where this comes from. Isaiah said, pause and wonder. Blind yourselves and be blind. They are drunk, but not with wine. They stagger, but not with intoxicating drink. For the Lord has poured out on the spirit a deep sleep, has caused your eyes to close, namely the prophets, and has covered the heads 
namely the seers. Being unwilling, and this was happening in Isaiah's day, being unwilling to actually see what the word of God was saying to the people, actually hear with true understanding. Even their prophets and their seers had become blinded to the truth of God's word. And sadly, today it would be like saying the evangelists, uh, the preachers, the teachers of the church today, when we attempt to twist the word of God to our own liking, then we become blind, unable to hear. And it's bad when the religious leaders of a nation become blinded to the truth of God's word because they are teaching the people what God's word actually says or they are twisting the word of God. Jesus declared that in his day, in Matthew 15, 14, they're blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into a ditch. In the eyes of the generation of Israel that came out of Egypt, we find that they had seen wonderful things that God had done, and yet they did not perceive the meaning of these things. And again, Paul quotes from Deuteronomy 29.4, that the Lord has not given you a heart to perceive or eyes to see or ears to hear to this very day. And sadly, Israel had become blind to the truth of God's word, something that I believe that Many in the church today and many churches within our world today, they are also falling into the same danger, the same trap. It's one of the reasons I love at Calvary Chapels, and it's not that we're unique at this, but we are known for this. I love the fact that we strive to teach through the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation, book by book, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. The Babylon Bee actually targeted the Calvary Chapel movement just last month about Calvary Chapel's teaching through the whole Bible, book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, except for certain verses in Numbers and Deuteronomy where you have the repetitive names and listing of the counting that most pastors don't even want to try to pronounce those names, so they, I do, skip over them. So we can laugh at ourselves. We do skip some of the redundancy, perhaps, in the genealogies. But other than that, we go through the Word of God. It forces you to see what God is saying to the church and to actually teach things that you may have difficulty as a pastor even at this point, still kind of questioning, understanding, but you're going through the passage, you open yourself up to the teaching of God's word in this way. I don't want to be a person, and I don't want us to be a people who become spiritually blind, unable to hear also what the Spirit is saying to the church. So Israel's table in verses 9 and 10, David says, let their table become a snare, a trap, a stumbling block, a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow down their backs always. This comes from a quote from Psalm 69 verses 22 and 23 where God is praying, uh, David is praying for God to curse his enemies. And he talks about the table. And speaking about the table, for the Jews... 
dinner time or breakfast, lunchtime was very special. It was a time of communion with God and one another. Now, we live in a day and age where the table, a lot of times the dinner table is used for special occasions, it seems. We're so busy, even in our own household, for Lily and I, just the two of us there. Our kitchen table is usually has my laptop on it, some commentaries. It's become my study. I have a study. I like the brightness versus upstairs in a dark room looking at a fish tank that needs cleaning. Uh, I like the brightness of the kitchen to study from. Because of that, we usually sit on the couch watching some program on TV. It's not a table of fellowship. Rabbi Shimon said, if three eat at one table and they have not spoken the words of Torah, it is as if they have eaten from the sacrifices of the dead, since it is said, for all their tables are full of vomit and filth without the presence of God. Isaiah 28.8. If three have eaten at one table and have spoken the words of Torah, it is as if they have eaten from the table of God. Blessed be he, since it is said, and he said to me, this is the table which is before Adonai. And so the table, which should be a table of fellowship, David understood this, the table that should be a, a table of fellowship that brings God in communion at their dinner times, David said, let it become a snare, a trap, a stumbling block, a recompense to my enemies because they did not comprehend the salvation. And for Paul, writing to the Gentiles and the Jews here in Romans 11, he says, let their table become a snare, a trap, a stumbling block, a recompense, because they did not comprehend the salvation that comes by God's grace through Jesus Christ. He said, let their backs be bowed down continually. And this is a, a symbol of slavery. In this case, it would refer to a slavery of sin. But you know, when I was thinking about this, the Bible teaches that every knee, every tongue will confess and bow down at the name of Jesus. That we have a choice when we will bow down. We either bow down at the name of Jesus now in life-saving faith, that we receive the salvation of Jesus Christ, or we will one day bow down in the presence of God's judgment throne. God had darkened the unbelieving Jews because they had already blinded their eyes to the truth of God's word in order that they could not see, in order that they could not hear that their backs would be bowed down to the slavery of sin always. But it wasn't just the Jews that Paul was concerned with, as he wrote about the Gentiles in Ephesians 4, 17 through 19, saying, And this I say, therefore I testify in the Lord, that you should walk no longer as the rest of the Gentiles walk, in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated by the life of God because of ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have been given themselves over to lewdness, 
to work all the uncleanness with greediness. Many of the Gentiles in the world, they're, they're blinded, they're past feeling, they're numb to the things in the world. And the church is not to be that way. But we discover in verses 11 through 12 that Israel's former failure concerning their future fullness, he says, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. Through their fall, they provoke them to jealousy. Salvation has come to the Gentiles. And although Israel stumbled by failing to recognize Jesus as the Messiah, their stumble gave way to the Gentiles coming to faith in Jesus Christ. But it was a stumble that was temporary, not a permanent fall. It was temporary. And now God was using the salvation of the Gentiles coming to Christ to provoke the Jews to jealousy that some of them might also be saved. In verse 12, now if their fall is riches of the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? That word for fullness in the Greek, it means to make full, to be complete or to be perfect. And if Israel's fall, their stumble, their failure opened the way of salvation to the Gentiles, people like me, perhaps like you if you're not Jewish, how much more will their fullness be? And since Israel is God's chosen people, when Israel comes to faith to recognize Jesus Christ as the Messiah, if in their failure many have come to salvation as a result of their failure, Paul argues how much more will their fullness be or that completion be? In Romans eleven twenty five 25 through 27, he says, and uses the same word, the same Greek word for fullness to the Gentiles. I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles have come in that fullness to make perfect until the fullness of the Gentiles have come in so that all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. God isn't finished with Israel. God is going to do a work in the nation of Israel and God is doing a work today in the nation of Israel, in our world today as well. In the sovereignty of God, God has elected a certain number of both Jews and Gentiles to come to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. I don't know what that number is. I don't know who are the elect of God. Therefore, I preach the gospel to whoever will call upon the name of the Lord, that they would be saved. But Paul argues that just in, as if in their failure, Israel's failure, many of the Gentiles has come to faith. He says, imagine what it'll be like when the Jews acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah. Can you imagine that, how beautiful that will be? All we know is that true riches are found through the saving faith of Jesus Christ. And finally, the first fruit and the root, verses 13 through 16, again, I read for context in verse 13. For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry, 
If by means I may provoke to jealousy those who are of my flesh and save some of them, for if their being cast away is reconciling the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? For if the first fruit is holy, the lump also holy, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. Actually, verse 16 somewhat stands alone, but it will also tie in with, we'll drop back to verse 16 when we pick up in Romans 11 next time. It'll tie in with the thought that Paul is going to carry into the remainder of Romans chapter 11. But the first fruit and the root, we find initially here this provoking to jealousy in verses 13 through 14. Paul's argument, if by God provoking or working in the Gentiles, he then could provoke to jealousy some of the Jews that they might be saved. He didn't say that at this point all would be saved. That is a future work of God, but that some might be saved. And here Paul in Romans 1.1, he introduced himself as an apostle of the gospel, separated to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here he says, I am an apostle to the Gentiles, and I magnify this ministry. He let the Jews know that he was an apostle to the Gentiles, and they, many, hated him for it. Many tried to kill him as a result of this. But Paul wasn't worried about the many. He said that I might provoke some that they might be saved. And some were saved. Some were brought to faith in Jesus Christ. And it could have been because of the work of God in Paul's life. Paul was just a a great example of the transforming work of Jesus Christ in an individual's life. I don't know if you've ever seen a great example of this, of someone. Those who had hated the gospel of Jesus Christ within the Jewish faith He was their champion, persecuting the church, trying to destroy the church. And he became one of the greatest champions of the church itself. And we have those in our world today that we might deem them as some of the bad guys. Initially, they were fighting against the gospel of Jesus Christ. But God gets a hold of their lives, whether male or female, whatever their story might be. And because of their story, they provoke others and they cause others to say, I want what you have found. I've seen the transformation that God has done in your life and I want what you have. He said, I hope to provoke some of my own people to jealousy that they too might be saved. In James 5.20, James wrote, let him know that he who has turned a sinner from the error of his ways will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. And we should live our lives in such a way while others are observing our Christian testimony, our words, our walks, our actions, that they might be provoked to jealousy, that they might say, I want what you have. But to be alive from the dead, verse 15, for if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, Again, he argues, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If by the Jews temporarily being cast away from the covenants and the promises of God that the Gentiles might come to faith, what will their acceptance be? He says, life from the dead. 
when the Jewish people returned to Jesus Christ and they recognized him as the Messiah, it will open a door of faith that this world has not yet seen. It will be as if there is a resurrection of life from the dead. That the Lord Jesus Christ, as it says in 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19, that all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us this ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God, who is in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, but has committed to us the word of reconciliation. We should be living in such a way that people see the difference that they desire to have what God is doing in our lives, but also know that God is going to do a work in Israel. That is what Paul is arguing here, that God has a future work in the nation of Israel. But Paul, he admits, I live, I magnify my ministry among the Gentiles that I might provoke some of my own Jewish brethren that some might be saved. Then he says, verse 16, our last verse for today, if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. The first fruit, the root, Paul may be referring to Abraham as the father of the Jewish nation. Abraham being a holy example, a covenant that was made to Abraham by God. Abraham's faithfulness to God, it had an impact upon his descendants after him. If the first fruit is holy, and we think of not fruit, but dough here, then the remainder of the dough will also be holy. If the root is holy, we think of a tree, the root of the tree, then the branches of that tree will also be holy. We think about the impact that Abraham had upon his nation, as God said in Genesis 17, 7 and 8. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. But we also know that Jesus is called the first fruits in 1 Corinthians 15, 23, where it says, but each one according to his order, Christ, the first fruits, afterwards, those who were Christ at his coming that Jesus is the first fruits, speaking about his work upon the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection. He is the first fruits of those who will be given this eternal life. But Jesus is also called the root. In Revelation twenty-two sixteen, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you of these things to the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David. He said, I am the root of David, that David himself came from Jesus. And then he says, I'm the offspring of David, that I in my flesh came from David. Very interesting. Jesus being the first fruits and the root. If the Lord God is holy, that influence that it has, it speaks about the holy influence that would be upon the lump, the bread itself, the loaf, or in the branches. And all I know is that holiness should be the result of Jesus being the first fruit and the root of our lives. And Father, I pray that we would know that grace today. 
Lord, first and foremost, it's an issue of our salvation, whether we are truly followers of Jesus Christ or not. Lord, that perhaps we have been basing our relationship with you upon the things that we do, our works. And today you are showing us that it's not by works that we are saved, but by grace and grace alone. First and foremost, Lord, that is the important thing, that we would each come into the saving faith of Jesus Christ through your grace, Lord, that we are saved. Secondly, Lord, perhaps we haven't been the greatest example to others. And Lord, perhaps it's a simple prayer that we would desire through our actions, our work, our words, our deeds, Lord, that you would help us to provoke others to jealousy, that they would see us and say, I want what you have. So, Father, I pray, as believers in Jesus Christ, that we would allow you to be that first fruit and that root, that, Lord, we ourselves would be made holy. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Calvary Chapel is a fellowship of believers in the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Our greatest desire is to know Christ and to be conformed into His image by the power of His Holy Spirit. If you would like more information about Calvary Chapel, or if you would like a copy of today's message, please contact us at 847-265-0646. That's 847-265-0646. Thank you so much for joining us today, and may the Lord richly bless you as you worship Him today. Let go.